Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Good to see if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We have finished our series through the Old Testament confusing book of Daniel. And uh, we're getting into something a little bit easier to understand. The letter that Paul writes to a young pastor, the first of his two letters to this young pastor named, named Timothy. As you're finding that, that letter, that book, let me mention that if you don't have a Bible, of course, use one of the ones that's in the rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that. We'd love for you to open it up and follow along with us. We're going to have the scriptures up on the screen but that's really just as kind of a help to people that might not be very familiar with looking up the uh, passages in the Bible. I, I think for the vast majority of us, it would be really beneficial if you actually had your Bible or one of the Bibles that's in front of you open on your lap to the passage that we'll work through and for you to see the words for yourself. As you're finding 1 Timothy, let me answer a question that you may ask. Well, why are we studying 1 Timothy now? And before we answer that question, I think it would be helpful if we had a little backdrop on the setting of this letter that Paul writes to this young pastor named Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians that Reynolds read from earlier. And the story of the church in Ephesus is really quite a remarkable one. If you have some free time this afternoon uh, or this, this week, I encourage you to read Acts chapter 19. It is one of the most entertaining and awesome chapters in the Bible, and it is the story of where Paul founds the church in Ephesus. So Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, taking the gospel across the Roman Empire. He comes upon this very important port city called Ephesus, which is, is, is in western modern-day Turkey. And he plants the gospel there, and he begins to preach and teach good doctrine for several years, and along with Paul's teaching, which was very common that God would do in the ministry of the apostles, God attended to or followed Paul's teaching with great miracles to, to be a kind of witness or a sign of the authority that Paul had. In fact, Paul had like handkerchiefs that his shadow just, that he just touched and then his shadow would fall on people, and they would be healed. I mean, that, that's causing, you know, a commotion. Paul is healing people. His handkerchief that's just touching people is causing people to, to recover from great sickness. And so there were these seven sons of this high priest named Sceva who wanted in on a little bit of that action. They saw Paul was powerful and mighty and, and uh, being used by God in miraculous ways. And so these seven sons of Sceva in Ephesus went around saying, by the Christ that Paul is preaching, I adjure you, this one particular man who was demon-possessed, these seven sons of Sceva went up to him and said, by the Christ that Paul preaches about, I adjure you, come out of this man. And the demon, the demons speak back to these seven brothers and they say, well, you know, Paul we know and Jesus we know, but who exactly are you? And then they get out of this guy that they had possessed, beat these seven brothers up. In fact, the Bible says, and I'm paraphrasing here, beats them up so bad that they left the house wounded and 
naked. Now, of course, (laughs) this caused a great disturbance when seven guys who are trying to, you know, get in on a little bit of the power that Paul has run out of the building wounded and naked. It caused fear in the city of Ephesus. Fear not so much that these demons would jump on them, but fear that what Paul was doing was real and that there is a real God and there is real evil that is opposing him. And this fear caused a great number of people to turn to the Lord. And in that context, this church in Ephesus is planted. In fact, there was these blacksmiths that, uh, and these men that would make idols that were so fearful of the power of the Lord that was moving in Ephesus at the time, they realized that they were making little bobblehead dolls for the false Greek gods, this one particular god, Artemis. And they were making little idols of Artemis. And they realized, oh my gosh, this is getting real. And God is real. And he's taken names. And the gospel's being planted here. And so they began to repent of their little idol-making business, these actual little figurines of this false Greek god. And so they start to you know, give all of their idols up and burn them. And then there was this, I guess he's the head of the, the blacksmith uh, you know, union. He says, well, wait a minute. This guy named Demetrius says, there's these people that are turning to Christ and they have the audacity to burn these idols And they're saying this crazy message that the God that we make with our hands, lowercase g, is not actually a God. Can you believe this? And that tumult, in fact, right after that, a riot happens. Paul sneaks out. And that's the setting of the planting of the church in Ephesus. Now, several years later, Paul is writing back to his young ministry associate, Timothy, And he is encouraging him and giving him instruction on how to lead and to shape and to mold this local church. So 1 Timothy is full of practical instruction on life in the local church. In fact, I think the the sort of center of this letter is found at the end of chapter 3 where it says, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so the, the sort of subtitle for this series through First Timothy is Life in the Household of God. What a local church is supposed to look like and practical instruction on, on doctrine and refuting air and how to choose leaders and how the church is to treat people that are vulnerable like widows in the church and how we as Christians are supposed to fight sin and and handle wealth and possessions and all sorts of practical instruction. But behind all of that, I think, is a deeper purpose for this letter to 1 Timothy. And I think that purpose is this plan that God has to display his glory to the nations through the local church. In fact, I think that's the heart behind these letters that Paul writes to these young pastors. It's not just so much, this is how you order a church. This is how you're supposed to be biblical. This is how you're supposed to do things. No, behind all of that is a greater missionary purpose of God. He's saying that I am forming a people the church in the New Testament, just as I formed Israel in the Old Testament to be a a display so that the onlooking nations would see my goodness and, and come to me, well, in very much the same way, 
in the New Testament, God forms his church, his people, from every tribe and tongue and nation so that this local church and local churches like us would be a kind of display by the way we conduct ourselves and love one another and do life together. It becomes kind of like God's evangelistic plan to an onlooking world where they hear the gospel preached and then they see the gospel lived out and embodied, not perfectly, but in consistency and with clarity in the life of the local church. And so what we're going to cover over these few months is, is a kind of picture of God's evangelistic plan to preach the gospel to the nations, the local church, places like Cross Point. So with that, let's pray, and then let's, let's get into it. Now, before I pray, there's just really two sort of major headings to this 11 verses that we're going to follow along with today, and it is two things that I want you to see. He gives Paul a charge and then a contrast, a charge and a contrast, and if you're a note taker, we'll, we'll unfold that as we go, a charge and a contrast. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your grace, for the fact that we can gather and extol the beauty of Christ. Help us now with this passage, this text that we will read and study this morning and think deeply about. Do wonderful things. Encourage and equip your people. I pray that you would draw unbelievers to yourself this morning. All for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people and for the salvation of any lost any wandering that might be in this room today. Do it all, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, let's stop there real quick, and I just want you to notice something. Well, first of all, we could spend a whole bunch of time just on this greeting. We won't. I mean, even if you look at Paul's epistles in the New Testament, even his hellos are packed with truth and doctrine, and they're just dripping with goodness for us. We're not going to get to all that's in these two verses because the truths that I think are embedded in these two verses are going to come up again in the rest of the book, and we're going to delve deeper when we get to them. But the first thing I want you to see here, just to sort of orient our hearts towards confidence in the Bible, is that word apostle there. And Paul is calling himself an apostle. This word apostle in the original language that the New Testament was written in, Greek, means literally a messenger or one who is sent. And it is specifically in the New Testament referring to a specific group of men. These 12 men that were the disciples of Jesus, the 12 that were closest to him in his ministry, received were especially sent by Jesus and given a special authority by Jesus 
to be the messengers of the gospel. And by messengers of the gospel, it means that they were the ones who were to establish the church and to write the New Testament. So earlier, Reynolds read from Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 18 through 22, where it says that the church is built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. It means that the work of Christ and the teaching of Christ is going to be taught and explained and established and, in fact, written out by this specific group of men called the apostles. So, in the Old Testament, we have 39 books from Genesis to Malachi. And all of those books come through the hand. They're written by specific men who were called prophets who had a special one-time authority to be the mouthpieces, the messengers, the writers of God's Word. Correspondingly, in the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, come through the hand of the apostles, these 12 apostles that were with Jesus. One of them proves himself to not truly be a disciple of Jesus at the end, Judas. And then another is chosen in Acts chapter 1 named Matthias. And then there are two or three other men who are also called apostles in the New Testament. One being Paul. So Paul was not walking with Jesus during his ministry on earth, but Paul gets a return visit from Jesus. So Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension, comes back down from heaven to make another appearance to Jesus, knocks him off of a horse, causes him to go blind, says, why are you persecuting my people? Stop it. Now start preaching my gospel. And so that was Paul's apostolic call there. So these apostles were men who walked with Jesus and were witnesses to his resurrection. And Paul gets his qualification by this return visit from Jesus. And then also Barnabas, Paul's ministry associate, is referred to as an apostle. Now, every book in the New Testament is either written by an apostle or is written by one of the apostles' ministry associates. So, for example, the four gospels. Mark is not an apostle, but he was Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, ministry associate. Of course, Matthew is, a disciple, is an apostle. John is a, uh, an apostle. Luke is not an apostle, but he's a ministry associate of Paul. And so the authority, the authenticity of the four gospels come through the hands of these 13 or 14 specific men. And then every book in the New Testament after the gospels is either written by an apostle, Peter, James, John, Paul, or one of their ministry associates. And so the early church didn't just gather together and say, ah, these 27 books look good. This one, I kind of like this one. The language is nice in this one. Let's kind of put these together. No, God was superintending by his Holy Spirit the, the collection of these specific 27 letters that had this imprint, this authenticity, this authority of an apostle. So don't believe the Discovery Channel this spring right around before Easter, when they do some documentary on the lost gospel of Thomas, where it says that Jesus you know, killed some kids when he was 12 and was actually married, right? No. There, there is a book called the Gospel of Thomas 
that has some true stuff in it and some whack stuff about Jesus beating up some kids when he was little and maybe being married, but it's not in the Bible because the early church knew in the first century that it didn't come through one of the hands of the apostles, okay? Now, some of you are like, okay, Brad, okay, good, I got this, whatever. Here's what I want, here's the reason I'm settling on this before we get into the bulk of this message, is friends, in a culture that increasingly doubts the authenticity and the truthfulness and the reliability of God's word. You as a Christian, even if you're not a scholar, even if you've never been to seminary, even if you don't understand any of the arguments, need not cower in the cultural argument that our Bible is just a hodgepodge put together by the Catholic Church in the mid-300s. Not true. The Bible comes through the hands of the apostles, superintended by the Holy Spirit, and there is no doubt that the 27 books we have in the Bible today, in the New Testament, are exactly what God intended to be put in the Bible because they came through the test of the apostles, which the early church instinctively knew about, and God brought about exactly what he intended to bring about. I know I'm on a hobby horse, but I think that's worth noting. And so here's just another little thing before we get on. I'm spending way too much time on this. I mean, this idea that, oh my gosh, that the Trinity is up in heaven saying, well, there should have been one more gospel in there. I mean, come on. The God who made everything out of nothing, if he's powerful enough to speak everything that is out of nothing, he's powerful enough to superintend the collection of the exact letters that he wants to be preserved for the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, if you can run, if you are Usain Bolt and you can run the 100 meters in less than 10 seconds, which is a physiological marvel, then you can run the 100 meters in two minutes, right? If you can bench press 300 pounds, then you can pick up one of those little five-pound little vinyl-wrapped pink weights in the weight room, right? collecting exactly what he intended to collect and moving on human hearts to ensure that they were preserved is less of a feat than creating everything out of nothing. Can, can we get a north-south on that? Okay, you guys are sick of it. I'm off on my hobby horse. Your Bible can be trusted. At least just give me an amen so we can move on. Amen. All right. Goodness. <laughs> Verse... <laughs> Verse 3, a charge. That was all intro, I'm sorry. Verses 3 through 7, a charge. As I urged you, Paul speaking to Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Okay, let's pause there and look at Paul's charge to Timothy. 
And there's three things in this charge that he tells this young pastor. The first thing that I want you to see that he tells Timothy in this charge is to stay there. To remain at Ephesus. Ministry, whether it is pastoral ministry or just being a faithful Christian in a local church or being a witness in a workplace requires endurance. And it's noteworthy that the first thing that Paul says to Timothy is, hey, listen, just stay there. Just remain at Ephesus. Just stay there. Faithful, unspectacular plotting is what Paul is calling Timothy to. Contrast this with just just how flighty our culture is. We just want to move on. When anything gets hard and difficult and challenging, we just, we just sort of interpret that as, 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 you know, God's calling us to move on to something a little different or easier. But in this sense, Paul is telling Timothy, stay there. And stay there for this purpose, which brings up this second charge that he gives to Timothy. Stay there so that you may refute error and teach the truth. So the situation in Ephesus is that there were these people, in fact, they're referred to twice just in these few verses from three to seven as certain persons that were teaching myths and genealogies that were leading people into vain discussions. Now, what were these myths and genealogies? Well, I we don't really exactly know. There's lots of speculation. Uh, they were likely maybe, especially when it's referring to genealogies, these teachers that were taking like the genealogies in the Old Testament, specifically in Genesis, and just going on and on and sort of making up uh, spiritual points about some of these genealogies that was really not the main point of the text, but was causing people to float away from the center and truth of the gospel and get involved in exactly what Paul says there, vain discussions. So in our day, it would kind of be like people using the Bible to uh, sort of be centered on themselves. Maybe, maybe it's like a, a prosperity gospel preacher who's taking some sentence or whatever or some verse and is sort of misconstruing it out of context and leading it into a discussion that becomes really vain and centered on mankind. Or maybe it's even just kind of like a, a, an overly pragmatic view of the Bible where, where man is the center and it's, it's maybe teachers that just use the Bible to just teach practical instructions on how to live life better or be a better leader or be a better husband or be a better worker or whatever. Not that those things aren't spoken to by the Bible, but it's, it's a kind of lack of gospel-centeredness that leads people away from the truth and the center of the Bible into what Paul calls myths and vain discussions. And that's what's happening in the church. And the real problem with that, we see at the end of verse 4, is that they're devoting themselves to these things. And the problem with it is that it promotes speculations or vain discussion rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Now this, this phrase in verse 4, stewardship from God that is by faith, is really packed full of what I think is the heart of this letter, is that, is that Paul is telling Timothy, 
create a church, lead a church, fashion a church where the people see themselves as not just recipients of the gospel for their own sake, but as part of God's plan so that they are stewards of this gospel so that the way they live together as a local church would be used by God as a display to an onlooking world. And do you see what Paul is saying here? These vain discussions, this missing the point of the teaching of these particular people is leading the church away from being able to be stewards or really missionaries as members of a local church. And that's the real problem. They are missing the point, And by missing the point, they're missing out on the mission that God has for them. And then the third thing that, that Paul says to Timothy in just these first opening verses, stay there, refute error, and teach the truth. And then thirdly, be motivated by love. And I, I am often chastened by this. He says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I'm chastened by it because as we live and as I lead this church in a world that I think hates the truth and even in church culture that minimizes the truth, um, oftentimes I feel myself slipping into frustration or cynicism or sarcasm or just, just grumpiness about the world around me. And Paul says here that the aim of Timothy's ministry amongst the Ephesians and in the church, and as he plants the gospel and refutes air, is to be love. And this love that Paul is talking about really sends us in two directions. It's a, a love for Christ and his glory, but to truly love Christ and his glory vertically will necessarily send us horizontally to, to love people around us, to love other Christians who maybe don't quite get it, or to love unbelievers, to love all manner of people. And so in summary, I think what Paul is saying here in this charge to stay there, hunker down, refute air, teach the truth, and let love, a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart be your motivation. He's saying do this because God is using you collectively as a people to be a display of something far greater than just personal salvation, but a display of God's glory to an onlooking world. And be people that love the truth. And he's telling, he's telling Timothy, plant the truth. Don't, don't try and build a cool building with lots of good programs and a rock climbing wall and good coffee and, you know, all this kind of stuff and laser lights and flashing this. And, you know, I mean, just, just look at church websites. Just look at them. Some of them are crazy and still got the little counter on the bottom, you know, like with the little rainbow colors. Okay. But look at some of the hip and sort of modern churches. It's like they're trying to attract you with their awesomeness. Right? And of course, everybody that makes their way into the picture of the website that's maybe on the worship team is just kind of really cool and beautiful. You know what I mean? And the subliminal message is, we're the church for the cool, beautiful people that have designer jeans, good haircuts, and wire-rimmed glasses. They don't really need them, but they look cooler. 
and soul patches and women that just look really kind of cool and mildly in a Christian sort of non-sinful way sexy. Come to our church because we are hip and modern and awesome. And we have discovered the relevant, hipster, awesome way to be a Christian in this culture. (laughs) And that is not what Paul is saying here to Timothy. He's saying, hunker down, know the gospel, refute error, preach the truth, and be motivated by a heart with love because you really believe that if people don't trust in Christ, they will spend an eternity separated from him. Listen to what one of my favorite dead British preachers said, and it's not Charles Spurgeon. I tricked you. (laughs) A more recent one. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored Westminster Chapel in London, World War II on into the 60s. In fact, I've told you the story about Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, during World War II, the Germans were bombing London. He was preaching on a Sunday. Bombs are dropping right outside the chapel. He's mid-sentence. Bombs drop, cause plaster and dust to fall from the ceiling. He pauses, waits till all the plaster and dust falls, And then he picks back up and keeps going. Stud. Anyway, (laughs) listen to what he says. A little bit of a long quote, but listen, listen to this. About doctrine and love and how the two are not mutually exclusive. What foolish creatures we are. Many of us are not interested in doctrine at all. We are lazy Christians who do not read, do not think, and do not delve into the mysteries. We've had a certain experience and we desire no more. Others of us, deploring such an attitude, say that because the Bible is full of doctrine, we must study it and grapple with it and possess it. So we become absorbed in our interest in doctrine and stop at that. The result is that as regards this question of the love of Christ, we are no further on than others because we have made doctrine an end and a terminus. In this way, the devil trips and traps us and robs us of our heritage. If your knowledge of the scriptures and of the doctrines of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has not brought you to this knowledge of the love of Christ, and I would add parenthetically, the love of other people, you should be profoundly dissatisfied and disturbed. All biblical doctrine is about this blessed person referring to Christ. And there is no greater snare in the Christian life than to forget the person himself and to live simply on truths concerning him. Martin Lloyd-Jones is, I think, picking up on what Paul is telling Timothy here. Love the truth of the Bible and plant it in the local church and love people and spend your life rolling up your sleeves with tears in your eyes and compassion in your heart, pleading with people to turn and trust in Christ and to know Him better and to serve Him. So, So how does this... Uh, apply to us before we move on to the contrast in verses 8 through 11. I, I think maybe the way this may hit some of us in here is that maybe, maybe some of us just need to stay put, roll up our sleeves, inconvenience ourselves, and dig into being on mission for God in the local church. One of the, I think one of the great um, weaknesses, and I can only speak for this particular city that I love, that is my hometown now. You guys know I'm not from here. I'm, I'm originally from another country called California. I came here 
although I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else, so this is home for me, so I don't speak, I love Columbus, I want to die here. But one thing I've noticed, and this may be true in other cities, but I just don't know other cities, is that I think one of the real weaknesses of the Christian culture in Columbus is just kind of people just hopping from church to church to church. Oh, well, they got a good youth group over here, so I'm going to go over there. Oh, I don't like that preacher anymore, so I'm going to go over here. Oh, they got a Bible study over here. I like, oh, whatever, you know, the choir stinks over there. Let's go over here. And the people just kind of hop around from church to church. And I'm not saying that there aren't good reasons to find another local church at times, but it minimizes this this endurance that I think God calls us to, to be people that roll up our sleeves, inconvenience ourselves, and dig into not being consumers, but not merely consumers, but contributors to this evangelistic plan of God called the life of the local church. Some of you are gifted and know the Bible well and you've been part of this church for years and you've never really given yourself to unloading what's in you because I don't know why. Maybe because you're just so distracted by recreation and, and means and stuff that you know you have and you, you just you don't remain there. You just go from thing to thing to thing. And what it does is it weakens the witness of the church, and it undercuts the plan of God to display his glory to an onlooking world, not through awesome programs or beautiful people singing songs or relevant messages or cool websites, but through the gritty, blue-collar, dirt-underneath-your-spiritual-fingernails life of a local church. I'll take your quietness to mean agreement. And then here's one other way that I just want it to, just maybe it can apply to us, is can we be as a church that rare combination of truth and grace? Jesus is described by the Apostle John, John chapter 1, is full of truth and grace. Sometimes churches are all truth and they're no grace. And we know those type of churches. They're angry fundamentalists. They just, you know, don't drink, don't chew, don't go out with boys or girls that do if you go to a rated R movie and you see another member from your church there, duck, you know? And it's just kind of legalistic. And then there are, are churches that are kind of all grace with no truth. And they err on the other side of the ditch by, by not really preaching the gospel. They just preach sort of justification by acceptance. But can we be the, the rare church, that the rare group of people that combines these two, the truth and grace, a kind of brokenhearted boldness that says, no, we need to plant the gospel. We need to teach the beauty of Christ alone and salvation in him alone. We need to teach the hard truth that all people are sinners and that God is holy and he cannot fellowship with sin. And therefore, our only hope is that our sin would be dealt with. But the problem is sin has killed us. And so we can't do anything to deal with our sin. And so the good news of the gospel in the midst of that very bad news that we are helpless is that God sent his son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully God in an eternity past, who became a man who lived a life that none of us have lived. He completely obeys God, then willingly lays down his life on the cross to receive the punishment of God the Father for all those that would ever turn and trust in 
in him. And so now, once and for all, sin has been dealt with by the perfect sacrificial death of God the Son on the cross. God the Father pouring out his wrath on God the Son who has enough eternal holiness, which is without limit, to extinguish punishment and wrath. And then removes it and rises again in victory and now doesn't just suggest or beg but commands and calls all people from every tribe and tongue and nation to turn away from themselves and put their hope in him. Can we be the type of church who believes that that message that the world hates and thinks is foolish, but yet we know that is the only way. And can we stand on that and not budge from that? But can we herald it to an onlooking world, not with anger in our voice, but tears in our eyes because we believe it's true and we believe it's the only way. And the most loving thing in the world is not to hedge from that, but to proclaim it with brokenhearted boldness. Can we be that type of church? I think we can. In fact, I think we must. Let's keep going now. Contrast, verses 8 through 11. Let's speed it up. So he gives him a charge, and then he draws a contrast. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." Okay, so he goes from the charge to this contrast, and he draws this contrast between what is very likely going on with these certain persons, these false teachers in the church at Ephesus, who were using the scriptures for bad purposes. They were using the scriptures, the law of God, for wrong reasons. And Paul wants to draw a contrast saying, don't teach like these people do, but teach the law of God in a good way. So let's understand this. Let's kind of peel this back and then we'll be done. Paul is drawing a contrast from the right use of the law and the wrong use of the law. So what is the right use of looking at God's word, specifically the law, the Old Testament in this sense that Paul is talking about? What's the right use of it? Well, in the 1500s in the Reformation, the reformers, specifically John Calvin, came up with what I think is a very helpful look at the law. And he said that there were three uses of the Old Testament law or God's commands in the Old Testament. And I'm summarizing them and I'm kind of letting them all start by... In fact, I just used this years ago to help me understand the three uses of the law in the Old Testament. And I just, I came up with this myself. So I'm kind of, you know, if this is goofy, then it's on me. These are not Calvin's words. So forgive me, John. But... The law is given to bring about despair, to deter sin, and to direct believers. So the three words, despair, deter, and direct. The first thing that the law is meant to do in the life of every person is not to give them a, a, a list of laws that if they can live up to, then they will be justified. No, God's law is meant to produce in us a despair 
so that we would realize that God alone is holy, that we're fallen, dead in our sins, and we have no hope of obeying God rightly. So the purpose, the first purpose of God's teaching in the Old Testament, which is what they're preaching in Ephesus, is to produce in us a despair of self-righteousness. In fact, we won't take the time to read it, but Paul refers to this in Galatians 3. He says that the law is a kind of tutor or guardian or schoolmaster that's meant to bring you to Christ. You're not supposed to read the Bible and say, well, I can do that one. Awesome. I'm good with God when we forget all the other ones that we're disobeying, right? It's meant to produce in us despair. The second thing that it's meant to produce in us in just the whole world is it's meant to deter evil. Even people that don't know the Lord. They're they're sort of informed by their conscience, you know, that certain things are bad. And that's the law of God written on every human heart. And so the law doesn't just bring about despair to bring humanity to this place where they will look away from themselves and look to Christ. It's deterring sort of evil on this earth to some degree. And then, thirdly, the law is given to after we become Christians, not by works of the law, but by Jesus' work on the cross, isn't that the law has no applicability in the Christian life, but now because our hearts, which were once dead in sin and have now been made alive by Christ and his grace and his work on the cross, we are now enabled by the spirit of God living in us to live in obedience to the heart of God's law. We're now able to live in obedience to the way that God calls us to live. And the use that Paul probably has in mind here is this this bringing about the despair. He says in verse 9 that the law isn't laid down really for, for for the just, as if there are any just people, I think Paul would say sort of sarcastically, but for people that need to realize that they must come to an end of themselves. And so what's the contrast Paul is drawing here? He's saying that these vain Teachers are using the law for their own purposes, maybe nitpicking from it, saying that we can obey this and so we're right with God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the purpose of the law. The law is meant to be a kind of despair-producing picture of the holiness of God that has the purpose of not driving you towards yourself in righteousness, saying, yeah, I I did this, and so I'm okay with God, but to drive you away from yourself so that you would realize that your only hope of truly obeying God is to plead the obedience of Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, several things to note before we wrap this up. This list seems to be a bit random to us. But Paul is likely giving examples of egregious violations of the Ten Commandments. So there's some things in there like, really, does anybody have, I mean, does anybody have a problem with slapping their mama? I mean, you know, really? But I think what Paul is saying here is that he's speaking of the Ten Commandments, the unholy, the profane, people who strike their fathers and mothers, speaking about the commandment to honor your parents for murderers, for the sexually immoral. That word sexually immoral means any sexual activity or even lust internally as Jesus explains to us in the New Testament outside of the one flesh marriage between a man and a woman. So it includes any premarital 
or extramarital sexual activity between heterosexuals. And then I think it is worthy to note, especially because of the cultural shift that we are in, that Paul clearly, along with, and I want to mention this, listen to me well, along with a whole host of other sins, lists homosexuality as clearly outside of God's plan for humanity and will bring a person, if they persist in it, to be opposed to God. So we need to comment on this in light of the cultural shift and approval, uh, a cultural shift of approval towards homosexuality. A couple things I want us to note, just very quickly. Note that we're not bringing up homosexuality to, to siphon it off as really more egregious than anything else is list, mentioned in this list. It's within a list of many things. And we as Christians undermine the scriptures and the truth of the gospel when we present same-sex sin, homosexuality, as more egregious or more difficult in some way uh, for God to forgive than any other sin. So we're not doing that. I am merely bringing it up and highlighting it because of the cultural shift that we are undergoing as a country. Another thing that we need to mention is that critics of the conservative stance on homosexuality not being an acceptable uh, lifestyle for a Bible-believing Christian look at verses like this that clearly seem to state that homosexuality, along with other sexual immorality, liars, perjurers, whatever else. I mean, Paul just throws out a wide tent. He says, whatever, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, sin. Critics of this historic interpretation say that what Paul is referring to here is merely exploitive acts of homosexuality, meaning like um, people that were taken into slavery. And that is just, there is no indication of this whatsoever in the text. The final thing I want to say about this is that we need a biblical understanding of sin and human brokenness. To give yourself over to any sin whether it is lying or perjury or heterosexual sin or disrespecting your parents or homosexuality or anything else that Paul mentions here, to give yourself over to that and to reject God's clear teaching is to put yourself at odds with a holy God. But... All capitals, bold, underlined, highlighted. But to struggle with sin does not mean that you cannot truly be a Christian. So there are people in this room who are struggling with lying. And there are people in this room who are struggling with disrespecting their parents. And there are people in this room who are struggling with unholy and profane things. And they are Christians because, as William Arnaud, that British theologian, said, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin, while the non-Christian is taking sin's side against the dreaded God. 
So all of us can say, amen, that's right. There are people in this room who are heterosexual, heterosexual, struggling with sin, who are Christians, and they need to continue to fight that sin. And we all say amen. And likewise, there are people very likely in this room who are struggling with same-sex attraction, and I believe that they can truly be born again if they take God's side against their sin just like any other human being who's broken. And do you see what Paul is saying here? He's giving us a comprehensive doctrine of what it means to trust in Christ. And that's the right use of the law. The wrong use of the law is what we've already covered by thinking that we can nitpick parts of the law. And because we can obey this, we amplify that and we feel justified by it. And then we accuse people who can't obey our strengths, and we minimize our weaknesses. These are wrong ways of looking at the law. And then finally, we see this connection between the law and the gospel. Well, friends, we've already, we've already talked about it. We've already talked about it, that really the law is to bring us to despair, and there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to obey this law. And Paul is telling Timothy Plant this truth in the church. Plant this gospel that the law is meant to lead people to. Plant it in the church. You see, this law, this holiness of God is not contrary or at odds with the grace of the gospel. It's what you must realize before you can flee to the truth of Christ. And Paul is saying, plant this truth in the church and with tears in your eyes and steel in your spine, preach the good news that we can only be justified not by our own works, but by the perfection and the beauty and the substitution of Christ and the cross, on the cross. And those that will trust in Him give witness to the fact that God has given them a new heart and now they can live for Him and obey Him. So friends, plant the gospel in the local church is the message that Paul gives to Timothy. Stand fast. Preach the truth. Hold it up and see what God will do with it. I conclude with one more quote from a dead Baptist English pastor. And it's the one you're thinking of. It's probably the Spurgeon quote that I have read most often here. And it never gets old. It comes from a little sermon that he preached on Romans chapter 4 verse 5 that says that God justifies the ungodly. (laughs) Think about that. God justifies the ungodly. Not people that can obey the law. He justifies the ungodly. That's the heart and the pinnacle of the gospel. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy to anchor this local church on. And this is good news. It's good news For the person who's been a Christian for 30 years, it's good news for somebody in this room 
who feels like they are so far from God that there's no way that they could ever work their way back to him on their own. And you know what? If you're thinking that you're right, you can't. But that, when you realize that, is actually the first step of realizing the gospel. You can't do it, but Christ can. Listen to what Uncle Chuck says to us on this beautiful truth. Come in your disorder. I mean, come to your heavenly Father in all your sin and sinfulness. So remember that list of sins in 9 and 10. The unholy, the profane, the perjurers, the liars, the sexually immoral, the young soldier who can't stop downloading pornography, the young woman whose heart is so entangled by the idols of what people think of her that even in this little 45, 50-minute sermon, you have checked Instagram 15 times to see how many people liked your status from last night. It's not just distraction or immaturity. It is a root of idolatry that has enslaved your heart. (laughs) And to those people... To those people, he says, come in all your sin and sinfulness. Come to Jesus just as you are. Leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come, you that are the very sweepings of creation. Come, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why should he not? Come, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you. I put it in the language of the text, and I cannot put it more strongly. The Lord God himself takes to himself this gracious title, him that justifies the ungodly. He makes just and causes to be treated as just those who by nature are ungodly. Is that not a wonderful word for you? Do not delay till you have considered this matter well. Christian and unbeliever alike, come to this glorious news. Let's pray. Father, may we be a church that contends for this type of beautiful gospel mixture of truth and grace. May we rightly use your law. May it humble us and put tears in our eyes and steel in our spines so that we are not angry at an onlooking world, but we are ambassadors to an onlooking world, compelling them to come to Christ. And for those that are in this room, caught in all manner of rebellion and sin, may they not wrongly use the law or understand the law and think that by their own works, by their own efforts, they can ever do anything to make them right with you. But may your words, may your truth produce in them despair 
so that they finally look away from themselves and to Christ who delights in justifying and making right people who are a million miles away from him. Lord, would you do this for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.